Let us pray. Lord, we want to believe. Help our unbelief. Give us faith, small as a mustard seed, so that as your scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what the Spirit is saying to our hearts. Amen. Our scripture reading is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 24 to 29. The Gospel of the Lord. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Jackie. It was one of those scenes that you'd read about on a blog somewhere. It was a dad and his 12-month-old in a cart in schnooks. And this kid, uh, you know, he was getting ready to blow. I mean, it was like that low rumble that you can kind of hear right before Mount Vesuvius explodes. And you couldn't tell if it was going to happen in five seconds or in five minutes, but you knew what was coming. And this dad, he was, you know, you could tell he was new at this. He was wearing way too cool of clothes for, for, for somebody who's a, a veteran dad. But uh, he's, he's, he's pushing the cart. And the whole time he's speaking these soothing words in a soft voice up one aisle and down the other saying, it's going to be okay, Blake. It's going to be okay, Blake. Stay calm, Blake. Up one aisle and down the next. People love you, Blake. You don't have to lose it, Blake. Blake, it's going to be fine. And in the cereal aisle, a young mom sees him and she admires what he's doing. She says to him, you know, you're, you're getting really pretty good at that. And you're doing everything right. You just keep speaking softly and, and reassuringly to your little boy, Blake. It's really the best thing you can do. And the dad looks at her, and he's in a bit of a daze, and he says, No, that, that's Charlie. I'm Blake. I hear you when you tell me it's not easy. Today we're going to look at, at what the ancient book of Deuteronomy, uh, thousands of years ago, has to say about parenting, both if you're a parent and if you're someone who maybe you haven't had kids or don't currently have young kids in the home, but you are participating in that baptismal vow where you're saying, I will, I vow before Almighty God that I will assist these parents in the nurture and admonition of this child. If you said that vow, how does it speak to you? You know, I've been in the same church for for 24 years now, and I've seen kids where I was there in the pew taking that vow, and I've seen those kids, then they go off to college, some of them, and they, then they, they come back from college, and they, some of them go on the mission field and serve the Lord all the days of their life, and then there are the others that aren't. Dan Allender states that if children raised in believing Christian homes 
only about 17% of them are in scripturally sound churches as adults. 17%, that meant 83% are are swept away. Uh, You remember the image in my head is, is seared for all time back from 2012 when Hurricane Sandy hit New York City. The story of that mother in Staten Island near the waterfront She was trying to evacuate her kids. She'd waited too late. She was too close to the water. Her car stalled in the water, in the flood, and she couldn't she couldn't get the car started again. And she had she was worried. She was anxious. She got her two children. She tried to get the safety and yet holding on as tight as she could, with all a mother's love and instinct ready to die for her children. Nothing could stop it. As she watched two year old Brendan and four year old Connor. Be swept away. It's the image that Jesus uses when he talks about the household, the family, the home, parenting. It's what Jackie just read from, from the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus spoke about the house that was built on sand. Sand being, in the Sermon on the Mount, the word for religion and religious rules and obligations. And he says that the house built on that, when the flood waters come, that household was swept away. of our kids. It's heartbreaking. The Bible says a lot about parenting, and it's really easy to get hung up on technical details about what the rod means that you're not supposed to spare and whether the rod can can be... does it have to be a spanking or, or is a timeout more effective? And what about positive reinforcement? And what are the other biblical principles involved? And, and what kind of diaper do I need to use in order that my kid would actually grow up a fulfilled person? And, and what kind of feeding and on what kind of schedule and what kind of school? Do I do Christian school? Do I do homeschool? Do I do public school? Do I do private school? Do I do Catholic school? What do I do? All of these questions. And I don't have answers for any of those, but there are 8 million websites and they're all claiming to be the one final source of authority on these matters. You can look there. What I want to look at today is the question that the Bible puts front and center when the Bible talks about parenting. And if you've, if you've been here for very long, you've heard this sermon in some form from some passage because it's a message that is repeated again and again in the Bible. What is God's heart? How does he speak into this question of how we raise our children to know him, to, to walk with him. What has the power to change a child's heart? And how does that happen? And how is it possible? These are, these are the same questions the early Christians would have been asking. That's why Jesus' words about it are recorded in Matthew's gospel. And it's the same questions that those early Israelites the generation after Moses would have been asking. And that's why what we see in Deuteronomy, 1,400 years, 1,200 years before Christ, we see that God gives the Ten Commandments, he gives his law, and then he immediately starts talking about something else, about how to pass it on to your children. How do you change a child's heart? That's what he answers. How does that happen? He tells us. And how is it possible what we see here. We're going to look at Deuteronomy 6. Uh, We're going to look at verses 4 through 12 and then skip ahead to verses 20 and 21. This is the word of the Lord. 
the law of God has just been given the commandments from, from Mount Sinai. Of course, this is Moses recounting it after the fact. Follow along with me as I read the word of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema Israel, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Echad. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Let me see, did I start in the wrong spot? We're going to skip ahead to verse 4. You can skip those first three verses. We'll start with hero Israel. Here we go. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads and write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And I don't know if this is in there, but I'm going to keep reading a couple of verses. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a land with large, flourishing cities that you didn't build and houses filled with all kinds of good things that you didn't provide and wells you didn't dig and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, he says, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And now, jumping ahead to verse 20, in the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations and the decrees and the laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. This is the word of our Savior and God. First question, what has the power to change a child's heart? Is there a resource that can accomplish that? I mean, you know what it's like when you're little and you're stubborn and you're cute and that buys a whole lot of affection. But when the arms are crossed and the will is a will of iron and that three-year-old is looking at you and that three-year-old in his or her mind thinks they're going to take you out. When you have that heart of stone, is there a resource that can turn it into a heart of flesh? When the heart is a block of ice toward God or towards the things of God, is there a resource out there that can melt the ice and bring about a stream of water that refreshes? The answer shouldn't surprise us. What has the power to change a child's heart? Uh, statistically, uh, you know, genetic evidence has shown that the vast majority of children are actually human beings. And the Bible says a whole lot about how God can change the hearts of human beings. There are certainly rules here. We have preached the last two weeks about the Ten Commandments because God has just given his law, his commandments, his rules, and yet then he changes the subject. Why does he change the subject? He changes the subject because he says, these rules I want written on your heart. 
I want them deep. I want them inside in the rules that I give you that reflect my heart, my will, my law of loving God and loving neighbor. These laws do not have the power to change your heart. They only have the power to show you what it looks like when your heart has been changed and is now sensitive to God to love him first and to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, it's what, it's what Paul says in, in Romans when he says that the law was powerless to do this because the rules can't actually change our hearts. And so Moses then points us to the power to get those laws written on the heart. Notice the change of subject. He gives the commands, then he changes the subject, and he points them to the grace of the gospel. He says in, in verses you know, 10, 11, 12, when you enter this land and you receive all these blessings, remember, you didn't earn any of this. You did not build the houses you're living. You did not, you know, plant the, the crops that you're harvesting. It was all of my grace. Remember, as you think of my commandments, go to the heart and remember what I've done for you. He says, you were slaves and I rescued you and I brought you into freedom and I made you my people and I loved you and claimed you as my own. Even in the Old Testament, over 3,000 years ago, God was saying, the gospel, my grace, what I do for you has the power to change you. Y'all, some of you have, have had a romantic relationship at least once. I have never had a romantic relationship in my life. Um, but, but some of you have. And you know what this is like. Because when your boyfriend tells you, you're supposed to love me and put me first, love me, what does that do? Yeah, thanks. Chill, come back later. But when somebody comes to you and you know they mean it and they say, I love you, what happens in your heart? When someone beautiful, strong, desirable, that you admire, says, I love you, what happens? See, love begets love. Commands don't beget love. And what God is doing is entering into this ancient romance between him and his people, him and you, saying, as you consider my expectations of you and the sacrifice I want you to make every single day to follow me, to obey me, to trust me, understand I want you to constantly go back to the grace of the gospel. I love you. I'm committed to you. I've rescued you. And I'm your God. And I'm going to be there for you. He goes again in verses 20, 21, 22, 23. When kids ask about a law, why do we have to do this, Mom? Dad, why do we have to do it this way? What about this rule? What about this stipulation? What about this commandment? He actually amplifies the fact that this is going to happen again and again and again. He says, when they ask you, don't say because God commanded it. He says, when they ask why we have to do this, tell them the story about what I did when you were enslaved and I came and I rescued you, when you were naked and I clothed you, when you were alone and I came and befriended you, when you were desperate and I heard your prayers, I heard your cries, and I came and I took up arms against your enemy and I crushed them completely and set you free and brought you to me to be my people because I love you. Why do we have to do this? Tell them the story. 
about the love of Jesus as we now know more fully than even Moses knew. Tell your children about me, about what I did when I came and took the blame for your sins and washed you so that you could go free. It's what Jesus said in the passage Jackie read from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. You build your house on religious rules, like in the Sermon on the Mount. It was said of old, do this, not that. It was said of old, do that, not this. And he contrasts that again and again throughout the Sermon on the Mount with the gospel and what it looks like when the grace of God, of having God as your heavenly Father, gets the law written on the heart and how different that is. The sand, the house built on the sand is the house built on religion, on what we do for God. And then the house built on rock is built on the gospel, built on Jesus, built on having God as your dad in relationship with him. And he says that when the wind comes and the waves come and the flood overtakes you, that house built on the rock shall stand. It's so radically different from what we hear elsewhere. What we hear so much in churches is a message about what we're supposed to do. Work harder, do better, try harder, go faster, perform better, project outward faithfulness and obedience. And I know my own heart, though. You know, I mean, what what does it look like when Americans make up a religion? Well, we do it well. Uh, We have holidays. Um, Better watch out. Better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and who's nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. When Jesus comes, he hunts down the naughty and he gives them gifts of salvation. That's why I'm up here. It's the opposite of American religion, which is all about performance, all about being better, all about achieving so that when I get to heaven, I can say, I am so good, I have done all this for you. And Jesus says, those are the very people who will be damned and lost for eternity. Those are the very people who will be swept out to sea. Because what he gives us instead is the gospel. Friends, build your family, build your house on the radical grace that God gives you in Jesus, not on the rules. The rules are there. God gives us rules. He expects discipline for the rules. This is not a message of cheap grace. This is not a message of permissive parenting. There's discipline in all of that, but tether everything to the gospel. That's what it's about. It's the only thing that can change a child's heart. Jeff Van Vonderen talks about an example of a kid named David. David was a kid who always, I think, felt empty on the inside. And he was always looking for approval outside of himself. It's something we were wired for in the garden. We walked around naked and God clothed us with his eyes, continually approving us. We still have an impulse. And so David, he gets in with the wrong crowd. And because he's empty on the inside and because he desperately needs approval from other people, He starts doing things that he probably otherwise might not have done. He gets into drugs, gets into way too much alcohol for a kid his age. He gets into 
uh, inappropriate sexual relationships. He ends up not doing his homework. He's almost, you know, they're threatening to kick him off, you know, the football team. He's, he's, his life's a mess. And his family, churchgoers, they do all the things they know to manipulate him into obedience. They threaten him with consequences. They tell him that if he doesn't shape up, they're going to send him to a Christian school as punishment. Uh, They threaten to kick him off the the football team. They tell him that God's going to punish him. And then David actually begins to turn around. And and the very things his church family longs for, he, he joins the church youth group. And he start, starts, starts going to church every week. And he's, he's, he, he's, he's broken off the friendships. And he's not doing the drugs. And he's not doing the alcohol. And he's trying to be sexually faithful. Uh, and, and because, because on the inside, he's still empty. And he's wanting the approval of his mom and his dad and his pastor and his youth pastor and his Sunday school teachers and the head of the football team. Now, here's the question. All of those people are suddenly thrilled with a massive life change that David has had. Pastors are happy. Grandma's happy. Grandpa's happy. Mom and dad are happy. Sunday school teacher's happy. Coach is happy. But here's the question. Which David is healthier? Is anything really different with David? He is still empty. He's still needy on the inside. He's still looking for acceptance and approval. He's still trying to earn that by performing for the people around him. The condition used to be obvious, but now it is hidden. The former David was unhealthy. The transformed David is unhealthy. And no amount of religious technique, pressure, or control is going to address those needs on the inside. Only the gospel can address internal needs for David to know that he is loved unconditionally, that his best friend Jesus already did everything he needs to do to measure up, that he no longer needs to perform because Christ has performed for him. And Christ's record, Christ's righteousness is credited to his account so that the Father himself is pleased with him. And the only set of eyes whose approval David needs is not moms, dads, grandmas, grandpas, pastors, youth pastors, church members, heaven forbid, or even the coach. The only set of eyes whose approval he needs are the eyes of his God and creator, and his God and creator is looking down upon him and smiling in delight and rejoicing over him as one united to Jesus who was brought from death to life and is acceptable to God. See, the gospel has the power to address the inside. Von Vonderen says it this way. He says, our children's biggest fight is always going to be the same as our biggest fight. We're all fighting to draw our sense of value and significance not from what we do, but on the basis of Christ's performance on our behalf. Jesus says, if anyone believes in me, springs of living water are going to flow up from within you. Being good athletically, having lots of friends, being in relationships with the opposite sex, achieving the good grades, being a leader in your church youth group, none of these things are able to fulfill our children because none of those things are able to fulfill us. We long for something more, something deeper that gets us off a performance treadmill that enables us to take off the mask and be real and be loved as we are as God himself addresses our insecurities and gives us a joy and a confidence and a hope that's based on what he's done for us. That's the point. Only the gospel has the power to change a child's heart or our heart. 
So how do children learn the gospel? They learn it through immersion in a culture that is all about the gospel, through immersion in gospel culture. We talk about this a lot here, and it's what Moses is talking about when he says, I want you to apply this, you know, all the time. I want, you know, the totality of your being to love me as, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He talks about uh, having his word reshape our environment. He says, I want you to have my word pasted everywhere. Stick it on your doorpost. Stick it on your... I, I mean, I used to have... Bible verses on my dashboard of my car, right there in front of the speedometer, it said, you know, it was from Romans, the end of Paul's letter to the Romans. It said, who are you to judge another man's servant? It is by his own master that he stands or falls, and he will stand because God is able to make him stand. And every time I'd be behind somebody who's really slow to get going at this green light, I'd sit there and I'd memorize a Bible verse. Yeah, he's saying, I want it everywhere. I want my gospel everywhere, shaping you, surround it, be in my word constantly. He says when you're sitting down and when you're getting up, when you're walking and when you're at home, wherever you are, be constantly talking about me and what I've done for you and what that then means in terms of how we respond. Don't condemn your kids by neglecting God's word, by neglecting prayer, for failing to apply the gospel to your marriage. If you're not confronting your spouse when hurt, if you're not doing it gently, if you're not then forgiving or asking forgiveness and applying that gospel in your marriage, it will not rub off on your children because they are watching and they are learning. They will learn your bitterness. They will learn your judgmentalism. They will learn your critical spirit. They will learn your complaining. They will learn it because they are immersed in a culture. But if you instead inject the gospel into your home, And your home becomes a place where it's safe to be a sinner loved by Jesus. Where it's safe to confess your sins. It's safe to confront. And it's safe to forgive. That's the air you breathe in your church, in your home, in your community group. Kids, they they will learn. Your kids will learn. It's the same way they learned English. By being immersed in a family where that's what they're all about. He says, every time your kids ask or question some rule or why we do things a certain way, he says, every time I want you to tell them about my salvation. How many of you know of children who question their parents at least once a year? Because if you know that, that means you are required by God to have an annual conversation about the gospel of Jesus and its implications on our lives with your children. Some of you have kids who question you monthly. And that will require you to have a monthly conversation about Jesus and his salvation and how much he loves us and how that then helps us want to put his word and his commands in our heart. Some of you have kids who who question things every single day. And that means every single day you've got to have this conversation about the gospel and about the grace of God and its implications on our lives. Some of you have kids who are constantly questioning things nonstop. Why do we have to do it this way? Why do we have to do it that way? They're at that phase and it's nonstop. And Greg, are you you kidding me? That means we're going to have to talk about Jesus constantly. Yes. That's a gospel culture. And at that very stage of life where they're asking it eight million times, that's the stage when they are most ready to learn. 
parents, you're not alone in this. This is in the context of the church. Deuteronomy is all about us being formed as the family of God, the people of God. You've got brothers, you've got sisters. You're not in this alone. Get immersed in community with your fellow Christians, people who are themselves learning to get the gospel deeply. And go deep with them. It takes time. It's not easy. They will annoy you. I guarantee it. But that's your opportunity to apply the gospel when you're annoyed by them, either to deal with it yourself or if they've actually hurt you, let them know. And let them seek forgiveness and give that forgiveness and see the gospel in your home, in your family, in your groups, in your church, and your kids will catch it. Church, let your kids know that God treasures them. It's the most important thing you can do. And I'm not just talking to you parents, I'm talking to the rest of you. Do not let a child leave this church without knowing that they are treasured by God, precious to him, and loved by him. You've taken the vow. Let them know it. Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible says, The Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, leaves everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has actually come true in real life. Teach them that they are treasured. How do you develop in your kids a deep sense of emotional security in an age of Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram. You know, you take your daughter out and you buy her a new outfit. And then she goes home and she puts it on and she takes a photo and she posts it out onto Facebook. And then what does she do? She sits there and waits. She's looking at her phone. First every couple seconds, then every couple minutes, then every 10, 20 minutes, then every hour. For days, she's looking at her phone to see who is liking her, who is approving her, who is accepting her, who is saying that she is pleasing, that she is good enough. What's she learning at that moment? That she needs approval from outside herself, that it comes from what other people think about her and particularly what they think about her her appearance. She's putting herself out there. Her self-esteem is on display for everybody to vote on. And don't think she's not learning. And when your daughter gets fewer likes than somebody else's daughter, do you think she notices? I guarantee she does. Every day for weeks and then months and then years, she, she becomes, and, and, then, and then the self-medicating begins. That's when the eating disorders might kick in or the substance abuse or the risky sexual behaviors all in a quest that someone might accept her, that someone would approve of her, that someone would validate her existence. And as she looks at other people's perfect posts, always comparing her insides to their outsides, what can combat that kind of pressure? Friends, it's pervasive, and it's toxic, and it's totalizing. It is crushing, and it is destroying the souls of our young people. What can counter that? Friends, there's only one thing. Tell her from the day of her birth 
that there is only one set of eyes whose approval she needs. Tell her that she has a father, a father in heaven, a God who delights in her and is pleased with her. Tell her that she is the apple of God's eye, his treasure and her desired, his desired possession. Tell her that he finds her pleasing, not because she looks perfect or behaves perfect, but because she is clothed in the beauty of Jesus, clothed in the righteousness of God the Son. He doesn't love her because she's beautiful. He loves her to make her beautiful. Tell it to her early. Tell it to her daily. Let the gospel be the balm that you apply to every single wound. The gospel, the power to face her every single challenge. The grace of God that she has in Jesus. Let that be the solace for her every failure. Let the gospel be the ultimate victory that puts her victories in context. Friends, let the gospel develop in her a deep sense of security, a peace, a confidence, the confidence that comes when a child knows that she is loved, knows that God has her back, knows that her destiny is secured, and knows that there is nothing she can do to make God love her more or less because she is a daughter of the Most High God and nothing can take that away from her. Tell her about the prince who left his far-off country to come and rescue his princess and tell her that Jesus is that prince and tell her that she is that princess. Dads, are you listening? You cannot delegate this responsibility. She needs to hear from you constantly. Tell her that she doesn't need a boy to tell her she's desirable. You don't need a boy to tell you you're a treasure. You have Jesus. And nothing any boy will ever say can embellish that reality. The gospel is the power to save. And for us adults in the room who feel the responsibility to point all of our children to Jesus, who are aware of our own brokenness, our own failures, our own lack of love, who look in the mirror and you never thought you would see this controlling monster you've become, that angry person who sounds just like your mother, though your spouse can never tell you that. You know, when you know that, you know that you need this same message because the Bible says that you too are that treasure that the King of glory left heaven to come and rescue because he was not willing to live without you. And he gave up everything in order that he might have you as his possession. Jesus knows when you've been sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. And he loves you. And he clothes you. And he washes you. And he delights in you. And he gives his life for you. And he sings with joy over you because he treasures you and he's not ashamed of you. You're the apple of his eye, the joy of his crown. He has named you his very own and nothing will take that away. Wayne Cordero talks about when his little girl Amy was three years old. They went to a Christmas pageant at her preschool and uh, it was interesting. You know, they were all packed into this room, and all of these three-year-olds were packed on this stage with, with one really well-meaning, well-intended teacher trying to lead them in singing Joy to the World. 
And of course, these are three-year-olds, so not a one of them was singing, though one little girl with blonde hair was moving her mouth as if there was supposed to be sound coming out. But, you know, nevertheless, the teacher's up there. She's got this little plastic banjo with plastic or nylon kind of acrylic strings that, that hasn't been pulled out of a closet since the previous Christmas pageant a year earlier, and that's when it was actually last tuned. And it sounds horrible. And she's singing horribly and the kids they're they're just focused on there's mom hey daddy they're distracted they're looking down at their shoes and then one kid in the back row very top starts to lose his balance and he's going backward and of course he's going to take the entire back row out with him but the teacher she's still singing it and at the end of it wayne says i jumped up to my feet and I started clapping uncontrollably. And all of these flashbulbs were going off. Everybody was taking pictures. It was a standing ovation. As he got out of the parking lot, he says this. I went out for some air and I was chuckling to myself. I thought we just gave a standing ovation to the worst concert on the history of the planet. I just took pictures of the worst show I have ever seen in my life. But gosh, my girl Amy, wasn't she awesome? Why in the world did I applaud? It was spontaneous. It was sincere. I was so proud of my little girl. It wasn't because of her performance. It wasn't because my little girl was really good up there. It's that it was my little girl who is up there, and I'm her father. I applauded not based on her performance, but based on our relationship. When I was thinking about that, he says, it was as if the Lord God reminded me again, Wayne, that's why I'm applauding you right now. It has nothing to do with your performance. It has nothing to do with whether you can sing the lines or whether you're even trying. It has everything to do with the fact that you are in a relationship with me. You're my kid. I'm your dad. I delight in you. I am proud of you. I'm going to applaud for you. And he says, my heart began to melt as tears came to my eyes because I began to understand that what pleases God the most is not what we do for him, not how good we are at parenting, not whether we even remember half of the lines or sing them. What matters is that he's our father and that you are his child. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, my father, I pray, Father, that as you shine your light of grace upon us, that we would be able to be parented by you who love us, who favor us, and who gave us your son. And so now we consecrate to you the elements on this table, Lord, that you would preach the gospel of grace to us needy sinners in whom you have taken such joy. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.